You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes Deadair Nipe here with always... Typical Lydia. On today's show, we're going to be doing the 1922 classic Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror. Everybody always leaves that last bit out, and it's my favorite bit of the title. A Symphony of Horror? A Symphony of Horror. Is that really part of the whole title? Yeah. Okay. It goes Nosferatu, colon, A Symphony of Horror. That's what the title is on the disc that I own, the 1994-ish release with David Carradine presenting the film. What do you mean he's presenting it? Oh, he has a little speech at the beginning about vampires and horror. And stuff why like why that. David Carradine? Who cares about him? It's the soundtrack is typo negative because the music is still copywritten from what I understand. Mm-hmm. That's why we see so many versions of it out there with different music, no music, live performances, whatever, because isn't that right? Uh, I don't know if the music is still copyrighted. It might be. It makes sense. Yeah. That's why it's not necessarily public domain, but the film itself is in the public domain. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty typical of things of that era, unfortunately. Um, Nosferatu, as I said, came out in 1922. It has the reputation. It has the pedigree of being the first vampire film. That's not true. It's not the first one. But... It's definitely the first surviving one, and it's the most famous. There are ones that predate it by well over a decade. I think, um, God, it was the uh, Vampire of the Coast in 1909, and The Vampire's Tale, 1913-ish or something like that. And then there's other ones like that. Unfortunately, like you can't view these movies, and you almost didn't get to view Nosferatu either. Mm-hmm. When it was released in 1922, F.W. Murnau and crew adapted Bram Stoker novel from when was it again? 1897. 1897. You know that like that's kind of like a new thing, right? In 1921, when this movie was getting shot, and they're like, "Oh, we're gonna adapt this 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 book that's getting all this buzz. It's been around for a couple of decades." Well, I'm sure it would have been printed on his psyche because Murnau was born in 1888, the same year that Jack the Ripper was uh, terrorizing London. Cool. So he would have been like 21 or something when Dracula hit. So let's say, and he was within Europe, so like he probably had about a five-year period where it was everyone was reading that, right? Everyone. Mm-hmm. It was a very like the talk of the literary world. So through his whole formative years and hanging out with the artists and cool people that he did. Yeah. He would have definitely been enamored of that. He was a fanboy. That's true. Um, And he would go on to do lots of horror things, lots of things that edged on the dark and the macabre. After Nosferatu, he did Faust. Uh, Famously, that story about the dude making the deal with the devil. Really cool movie. Uh, The first time I ever saw Faust and Nosferatu was actually in the Mayfair Theater. Oh, they, really? When they did a double bill. They did a double bill with live music way back in the day. Not unlike what we enjoyed uh, yesterday. 
which is how we saw this movie together. Lady and I, typically speaking, we go to her place and we pop in a movie on DVD and we'll watch it together and then that's what we do. Yesterday, we decided to go to the Mayfair Theater. Yeah, it was Dead Air Goes to the Movies, I suppose. It was pretty cool. The coolest thing about the Mayfair Theater to me is... The Xenomorph and the Balcony? That's pretty rockin', but it wasn't always there. Um, I don't know if I've explained this before, but I have like kind of like a, a lot of history with that theater. I mean, Ottawa itself has a lot of history with that theater, but my personal history was the fact that like my father was an accountant and he did the books for a lot of medium and large businesses in and around the city. And his childhood friend was this dude named Dave who was running the Mayfair Theater. And so my dad did the books on it. And so because of that, I was afforded a certain level of access to this theater that I miss very, very much. Eating popcorn under the seats during the daytime? Just like, you know, I didn't pay for movie tickets. I didn't pay for concessions. I was paid uh, one weekend a year to do security and to warm up the crowd for the Rocky Horror Picture Show there. So I love this theater, and even when we were there, every time we're there, but yesterday, you know, even when we're the last two people in the theater and they turn the lights on and I look around, I'm like, oh my God, this is just taking me back to <laughs> that moment where there's no patrons in the theater and the lights are all on and you feel like you're the only person there. Um, and the awesome thing about it, honestly, I couldn't help thinking multiple times, that in 1922, which seems so long ago, so fucking long ago, that Nosferatu premiered mm -hmm. and started making its circulation. The Mayfair Theater was 10 years away. Yeah, well, less, really, no. 1930s. Okay, 1935. Yeah. Because they're the same age as the Dion Quintuplets. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, because um, I know these random things. Just call me Cliff Clavin. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh,. For those who aren't familiar, Cliff Clavin was a character on a sitcom in the 1980s called Cheers. Uh, he was a postman, and he used to sit at a bar. Where everyone knows your name. Where everyone knows your name. And he used to sit at a bar and expel a lot of random facts. Fuck, I hate that show. <laughs> but anyways, not everyone, not everyone might not know that reference. Or the Dion Quintuplets. Or the Dion Quintuplets. Yeah. yeah. First living natural and only natural set of quintuplets that made it to adulthood. Anyway. Um, yeah, so my point is is that you think about it. It's a, a contemporary thing for that time because yeah. they very well could have showed something, if not Nosferatu, on a, its inception. The Mayfair is that old. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, think about a movie that you liked 10 years ago. That's not that long ago. Like, like fuck. Think about like the like the last Lord of the Rings movie, like the Return of the King. That was ten years ago. Think about that. So like that's not long ago in your mind because you know we're now living in twenty fifteen. So think about like Nosferatu, which we look at now as fucking ancient. Oh yeah, like, where it's it's on that cusp of so many lost films. His first eight films are lost yeah, forever. Yeah, there's a lot Murnau's of films, films yeah. before that, and like in the next twenty years around that, that are fucking lost mm -hmm. forever. And this film would have been one of them. Uh, Bram Stoker's Widow was still kicking when this movie was out. Uh, Florence, mm -hmm. and well, when. She, 
this movie popped and it did pretty well. Uh, not really financially because it didn't really get a, a chance to reach its full potential because of this lawsuit, but critics liked the movie. I mean, there was a couple, it wasn't like glowing reviews across the board, but critics were like, yeah, this is pretty good and this is pretty haunting. And uh, uh, Murnawa has delivered a, a creepy thing that the audience has never really seen before, but Florence Stoker made sure that all copies or most copies were destroyed. Now, because of the similarities to Dracula and the fact that it was an unauthorized reproduction. Yeah, it's not loosely based on Dracula. Uh, no, I mean, the names are changes, some parts are removed, but for it's fucking Dracula. If you've yeah. seen, if you've seen any incarnation of Dracula, if you've read the book before, you'll pretty much know what the plot of this movie is, um, with few minor exceptions that I would say are trivial. Yeah. So they were ordered to have all copies destroyed, burned. Yeah. And there's two different stories about how it survived. One's a little bit more romantic than the other. Did and he put it in his bum? That, no. Through the war? No. No. Survived the Second World War with it in his bum? No. 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 And he it sounded a little like Christopher Walken saying no. No. <laughs> Lydia, come on. It's crazy. Anyway, um... Anyway, it didn't distract me with my stupidity. So one of the stories is basically that... Well, this film was filmed with one camera. And so there was one negative in which all copies were made from. Most of the... Or if not, all copies were destroyed. One of the, That is, like, understood. But the little part that deviates is that some say, Oh, there were so many copies that they just couldn't destroy them all and yada, yada, yada. But the more romantic version is that a single copy survived and was stowed <laughs> away and hidden and was passed around secretly through film buffs and were shown in theaters. In, and Satanists. And Satanists. And Satanists, basically. Yeah. Which this, this version of the story makes so much more sense to me because film's expensive. I can't see them making like trillions of copies. Yeah, and... So it made its rounds and gained a cult following. So Nosferatu is accredited with one of the first examples of a cult classic, a cult hit, because its aftermarket success was a lot bigger than its opening premiere. But again, it probably would have made its money and been a bigger success had all of the copies not been destroyed and had it been allowed to be distributed openly because I'm not exactly sure how long it was able to be distributed for, but I don't think it was any longer than a couple of months before Stoker's estate uh, put the kibosh on that. I don't know. The, the speed of news wasn't what we're used to, of course. Like, of with course our 24-second news Flo, Flo, uh, uh, Like, at Flow Stoke says, Stoke, yeah. Stoked on Flow says, like, guys, do not watch Nosferatu. Hashtag theft. Yeah. Hashtag believe it. Hashtag truth. <laughs> Just spreads out. Yeah. Ten minutes later, the film's destroyed. Yeah. Um, so I, I could see it surviving even a year being shown locally. You mm -hmm. know, really. Um, and who knows, like, I don't know what the distribution was, I have no idea, but news does just simply travel slower, and the destruction of all the videos isn't like they walked into that one video warehouse, mm -hmm. or, like, film, and destroyed them all in one fell swoop in an afternoon, like, it would take time to do all of this stuff, and travel isn't what it, was it, what it was, so it would have taken them months to destroy them all, I'm sure, depending on how many there are, and these are things that I don't fucking know, um, 
But I do know that the fans of this film, the the ones that would have secreted copies away if there were multiple copies or the mythological copy. I like the mythological copy. I like the mythological copy too because there well there would would have been a work print and this copyright, so that's still two. Um, the script was written by a member of the Rose Cross, a Rosicrucian, mm-hmm. and the Rosicrucians begat the OTO and the Thelema, if you're familiar with Aleister Crowley, which begat, in a way, the Church of Satan and our contemporary Anton Levayan Satanism and our Church of Satan Satan. So it's like those sorts of people would have been the fans of it at the time. So there was a lot of like OTO, uh, Golden Dawn and occultists right yeah that were fans of this and that were the money behind this that were the money behind the production company the short-lived production company so all of this was prana prana was the prana yeah yeah which i didn't i i just learned today became pan which is kind of cool and i I, have to look at all their other satanist movies (laughs) prana the production company that put this on this was their one and done, not because I, they didn't want to make any of the production companies, because the Stoker estate sued them so hard that it was pretty much done. But then they reformatted and became Pan. Yeah. I wonder if they still did what they did before, because when Prana, before they did this one film, which was going to be the beginning of a film production agency, and they were going to put out all sorts of movies, which would have been so cool to see in this alternate reality where that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, they also supplied uh, like ritual and altar supplies so like maybe not skulls and stuff but like candles and incense and crap like that so it would have been interesting to see how they would have morphed from this like occult cult and you know uh, esoteric literature and goods distribution company and film Mm -hmm. it could have gotten pretty creepy pretty fast yeah, it definitely could have. Although, do you think that they would have become like saturated with with money and fame because and, and as they well, tried like to... who like they're basically like it's it, to put it in like layman's terms, it's like if all the Freemasons owned a film company in the, the turn of the century, mid like between the two world wars, all of the stuff that they could have afforded to put out, all the money behind that, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like, yeah, that's basically what it's like. So, yeah, they would have had all kinds of time and money to put out whatever they wanted. Starting with Nosferatu. Nosferatu's their flagship? Yeah. Imagine. It's a pretty big statement. Yeah. Totally is. It's not only the first, quote-unquote, although it's not the first vampire movie, it's really the first occult movie for occultists by occultists. Yeah, absolutely. And even though that it doesn't hold the historic record of the first vampire film... As I said, it's the biggest from the era, and it's surviving intact, which, as we've already discussed, is incredibly rare for movies of this era. People always wonder why, in the silent era, there's always a handful of movies that horror fans in particular will reference constantly. I mean, there's lots of comedies, and there's lots of stuff out there, but compared to how much was made, there really isn't much of anything. And... It just comes from the fact that people didn't know how to store film or accidents happened or it wasn't really deemed as important to preserve it. It was such a new medium and such a loosey-goosey fucking thing back then. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the trappings of 
the silent era was the fact that it was so new and it was so raw. But because of that, you had people trying things that they just don't do anymore. And because it's a silent movie, when I first started getting into silent movies, I noticed immediately how different it was, how the storytelling elements were so fucking different because you weren't really spending a lot of time watching people talk. You were watching a lot of people reacting to things then having long stretches of dialogue with maybe one or two title cards. And then you would find yourself having a hard time following because I guess for me, when I wasn't listening to dialogue, my brain wasn't paying attention to the story hard enough about the, the, so like I found myself waiting for title cards and then I'd read the title cards and be like, I'm confused. What's happening? <laughs> it's like, it wasn't until you really started watching. You were interpreting all their actions, reactions. No, exactly. Yeah. Cause, and, and then of course you, you look at how different acting was back then. And some people find it amusing. And let me tell you, there are some fucking moments in every silent film where I'm like, <laughs> Oh yeah. And this Even, is no exception. Yeah. There's no exception to some real derp looks and just <laughs> unbelievable exuberance and glee at the <laughs> stupidest moments. But yeah. Yeah. But uh, the basic plot of this movie, as we said, is a very close interpretation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. So you have a story, you know, it starts off a lot of real estate, <laughs> well, yeah, and that's what, yeah, Dracula isn't much different. Yeah. Yeah, and it's told in letters, so it's, like, very uh, backstory heavy and very exposition heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing is that you, making it easier to watch this as a silent film, because you know the story, right? Yeah. It's a lot easier to watch and interpret and digest with or without title cards, and the title cards are really interesting in this anyway. Mm-hmm. So it does make it highly watchable. And us having the opportunity to be sat down in a Ludovico technique style, forced <laughs> to watch it. You are like, when you see this on the big screen. Yeah. In the restored version, which mm-hmm. I'd never seen before, which I really, really, really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, the 2006 restor- or restored version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's quite beautiful. And to see it on the big screen like that, you're forced to pay very, very close attention to a film you already know. And to a story you know intimately, right? Mm-hmm. So it was a really cool way to watch it. And I really recommend to anyone to watch that. And if they can get a chance to ever see it in theater, mm-hmm. they simply must. And talk about seeing a movie the way it was meant to be seen. Because in 1922, you saw the movie in the theater and that was it. You didn't go home. Like There was no DVD. There was no VHS. There was nothing. There was no television. You get an opportunity to maybe see a movie once. You would see Nosferatu once. If another theater ran it again, you would have an opportunity to see it again, maybe, if you wanted to. But also, there was a whole bunch of other things. Or if you're super rich or like a Freemason or a prosecution, then you could go and watch it at your friend's house. Exactly. But, I mean, not a lot of people had home theaters like that where you could just fucking put a whole reel of film in or... Or, or rent out a theater. Not people really had that kind of scratch. Not a lot of people. I mean, people did, but... Not like it is today. Oh, hell no. It's today... Easy. We could go rent the Mayfair and watch this again if we want. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pop in the DVD. Where you go. Yeah, because that's just it. It's like we can... There's so many different versions 
of this movie available. It's so fucking accessible. The whole fucking thing's on YouTube. Uncut. Yeah. Just watch it on YouTube. You're done. Mm -hmm. Like, it's on Netflix, uh, Blu-ray, DVD. We fucking saw it in theater. So, uh, but I mean, like, and, and that's just how it is nowadays. Nowadays, a movie will premiere. Eight months later, you can get it. A streaming or whatever on home video. Back then, if you saw it ever again, it might be your lifetime. Yeah. Before you saw it ever twice. Yeah. And so... When we're when you're sitting in an old theater like the Mayfair and you're watching this movie on the big screen, yeah, it just feels fucking right. Yeah. I just love it. I'm just like, oh, this is so. And it might not be everyone's thing. I get it. Like some people don't give a shit, could give two fucks about that experience. But for someone like me, holy fuck, do I love it? Yeah, it was nice with the live music too, and it was a change because I've heard it with different scores, of course, like the typo negative score. Typo negative score, yeah. Cool. I think I'm I'm more accustomed to the big orchestra version. I have the 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 restored version that we watched. I have that at home as like a big sort of kick-ass two-disc box set. But I never heard it with this melodic guitar, and uh, it was a keyboard too, right? Yeah, like a synthesizer. A synthesizer version that we saw, and watching it with that music. I really understood all these years later, and, and I, I hate using this term, but like, because it seems like a catch-all thing that people say about a lot of fucking silent movies. People say this a lot about Nosferatu and Vampiri and uh, like shit like that. German expression. Ger- Ger- oh, uh, Cabin of Dr. Caligari. That, that not Vampiri. Vampiri is not really silent, but Cabin of Dr. Caligari is what I meant. Um, it is dreamlike or a. Or, or, uh, hypnotic melodic yeah like because they can't come up with other words right uh, that's the words uh, that people have been uh, using to describe this yeah and neither can I I, I'm not trying to say like these are the fools that use these words to describe this and I'm here to crack the world wide open with my shit no I'm just trying (laughs) to say that it it is dreamlike and I never really noticed how fucking dreamlike it's a dreamlike hypnotic film and then you're listening to it with this dreamlike hypnotic score droning fucking ethereal, amazing, one continuous piece of guitar and synth music, which really, really lent itself to it. And of course, they're playing along watching the film too, right? So they're definitely taking the cues just as it happens, right? So it mm-hmm. seemed semi, not semi-improvised necessarily, but there certainly were parts that were so in key with what was happening on the screen and the tension level, right? It really did amp up the tension level. Yeah, it really did. And it, it, it made scenes that weren't creepy to me, creepy. Yeah. Like, and, and I don't mean to say that, like, I don't find this movie scary. I mean, like, scenes that were literally just, like, scenes of nature, like horses and shit. I'm like, oh, this is kind of creepy with, the, with this <laughs> right. music. That's another complaint. Not complaint. That's another observation a lot of people have for movies from the silent era and the early, even in the non-silent era of Universal like horror and stuff like that. They're like, this isn't scary. This isn't scary. I don't understand why this is scary. It's boring. I don't like it. Well, I think that one of the things to remember was because this was such an experimental medium at the time, people, directors, writers, actors, they didn't know, they didn't know the tricks of the trade that a lot of horror makers know today. They didn't know much about jump scares. They didn't know about that sense of like false danger They didn't know about anything other than showing you things in classic horror tales 
that would be disturbing by virtue of the fact that they shouldn't exist. Like when you look at Nosferatu himself, uh, played by Max Schreck, so rat-like and gnarled and like cadaverous and fucking just creepy. Yeah, totally otherworldly looking. I've never seen another human that looks like that. And there is like a, a slow transformation of his look through the film too. I never, I noticed but didn't notice it's subtle, but Especially he gets the like more gargoyle looking, right? Yeah, yeah, very rat like. So you're looking at, a, at like something like Nosferatu, and you see an interp- a visual interpretation of a vampire that is wholly unique, because so many people are accustomed to the more suave, the debonair, like, the aristocratic type vampire. Yeah, yeah which is which is. Really- which is great. I, you know, I like those interpretations of the vampires too. But for some reason, I've always liked the vampires that looked the most monstrous, and so Nosferatu was always my favorite visually. I just liked the idea of how intense and fucking weird he looks. Like the like, it helps the fact that it's a silent era actor who probably is used to big performances because of a background in theater or something like that. But that performance combined with that makeup combined with the shots that are used creates like this fucking amazing character on screen that has never really been duplicated. And this movie that like the, the fucked up thing is like Nosferatu was a copy of Dracula but Nosferatu is its own subsection of vampire films because this because Nosferatu gets remade, which is a fucking mindfuck to me because it's <laughs> like you're remaking something that's Bram Stoker's Dracula, but you're not. It's it's like the Nosferatu brand yeah. of vampire is being remade, and they're really just doing Dracula. But when you say Nosferatu, you know that you're talking about like the pale rat long fingers pointy teeth vampire you're not talking about like Bela Lugosi or Christopher Reeve or something like that no but then Christopher you take, Lee then you take <laughs> into account like just uh Werner Herzog's pedigree and what he is as a filmmaker he's like the Ansel Adams of film so mm-hmm. he's definitely not going to remake Dracula why go to the source material when he's got this beautiful thing to riff off and that's mm-hmm. what he does is riff, riff off the the beautiful things he sees in the world and the mm-hmm. horribly ugly dark vile murderous abysses mm-hmm. so even though of course he's not gonna go back to the source material when he has this to work with even though um the nosferatu vampire is rather hideous and fucking just fucking weird looking. it's like a revenant if you've ever played any did you ever like, I hate to ask, like, in real life, are you a LARPer, Wes? Did you ever LARP? Did you ever play Vampire Masquerade? I'm I'm not fucking nailing myself to that cross. <laughs> what a fucking question to ask another human. Um, No, I've never LARPed. I've known people that have LARPed. A friend of mine, she used to LARP in a Vampire Masquerade type scenario. That probably was, the Masquerade. Yeah. Um... The Revenants was a, a clan within that game, within that world. And uh, that's exactly what he is, right? That's exactly what he is, is a Revenant. Was that based off of him? Like, like Nosferatu? They're like, oh, we want it like a... a... Oh, completely. Can I tell you, um, this is a little bit of a tangent. Can I tell you a story about 
me finding myself in the middle of a World of Darkness LARPing situation, and I didn't know what was going on. Sure. <laughs> uh, well, I'm a convention goer, and one of the conventions that I love to go to is Anime North. I've been going to Anime North for 10 fucking years. So... I didn't even know they had it when you were 10. Because you're just a little tiny kid, so I mean, wow, that's forever. <laughs> How'd they let you? Did your mom take you? She she did. She was very disappointed, but she let me go. Propeller beanie and everything. Well, I still have that. But anyway, um, so uh, we, uh, a friend of mine, were enjoying some drinks and stuff like that. Maybe had a few too many, and we ended up in Anime North is like a series of hotels, and one of them is like the gaming hotel. Uh, and it's a lot of video games and and on the Saturday night we'll go there and there'll be people playing video games and so we want to go do that and you know we're a little buzz and we're walking in my friend gets super distracted by a claw game and he's trying to play that and I just see this really huge guy just fucking trucking along just it looks like he's out for blood looks like if you ever see a dude in a bar who looks like he wants to fucking fight and you don't even like know the situation, but you can see this guy looks mad and he's going to punch somebody, yeah. that's what this guy looked like. Big, six foot three, 250, 260 pounds, a monster. Yeah. And, and he was just, and like people were kind of looking at him worried and shit like that. And, and I was, and I go like, uh, uh, this is Scott from Scott's Horror. I'm like, Scott, Scott, that, that dude's fucking gonna. That dude's gonna fight somebody. He looks pissed, and he, and he's like, "What?" And he's looking, and then a guy goes to a dude sitting on a chair reading a book, and he says something to him, and the guy looks up, closes his book, looks at the big guy, he says, "I'll take care of it," and and I was like, "The security guy is gonna throw him out." You're into this, like, and I was so freaking confused because I thought it was real, and and. And my, my friend goes, I think they're LARPing, Wes. I'm like, what? What's that? Because and then I, I, I get closer and they're like fucking telling backstories and shit. The, the big dude was a werewolf man. Oh, okay. I didn't know. <laughs> but um, So it was like a World of Darkness role play. And then we looked around and everyone was wearing a badge that was indicating that they were characters in this story. And he and I had wandered into the middle of it as civilians, let's say. And that was my first experience, even really knowing what LARP was. <laughs> I still have my pin from when I was um, a masquerade LARPer. What kind of vampire were you? I'm curious. I was, um, I was like an orphan, and I was apparently, according to the backstory, um, not kicked out of, but my mother was slaughtered, uh, and she had been part of the Sisters of Cacophony or however you pronounce cacophony. Um, but I was adopted in by the Marquis de Sade into the Bruja clan or Bruja clan. Oh, man. Talk about a romantic background. Quite. Yeah. <laughs> I had memory loss, and I was a deviant. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. But my mom was one of the sisters of cacophony. Cacophony. Cacophony, I, yeah. I have such a hard time with that word. It's a toughie. Yeah. So my mom was one of the sisters of cacophony, and so I was eventually going to, like, the arc was that I was eventually going to discover that and start like turning my back on all the thieving and deviant punk rock ways oh yeah anyway back to this movie you could see the marquis decide wanting to warp that right oh yeah for sure (laughs) this um i I guess like the the thing that's hard to talk about uh, the plot of this movie is basically that 
it is Dracula. So there is a lot of familiar elements. Um, there is... One of the things that I thought was really interesting about this movie, and one of the things that I've always loved, is the heavy emphasis on the the fact that like they interpret the vampire as carrying plague and carrying with it disease and having with it the rats. Now, initially, I thought, oh, he's turning into rats. But I guess the idea is more like he's bringing rats with him because he's bringing his soil with him. Yeah, he has to travel with his soil. Yeah. Yeah, he, I guess that's the only way he can get over running water, right? Although he goes over running water often. But, yeah. yeah. Um, the rats, I, I always thought that he was turning into rats. That's what I always thought. Yeah. But I've read uh, interpretations of it. Well, maybe maybe it's just interpretations and, and, and whatever. But was that like, no, 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 he's bringing rats with him. Or that, or, or that like he is bringing plagues with him or carrying disease with him. But I was like, I thought he was the plague. He is the disease. All the, and if you look at the death toll that he brings, he just in this movie, yeah, it's yeah. fucking massive. It's almost as if like he constantly is feeding on multiple people a day. He kills a ship full of people. He kills a ship full of people and he starts killing a town. Yeah. He arrives in London and just decimates the place with the plague. Yeah. Um, or him himself, um, and in a time when a shipment of fucking blankets can bring the plague, yeah, sure, a bunch of dirt and some rats, yeah, but he's, he's definitely bringing the plague slash is the plague. But the plague was like lifted once he died, so. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. Spoilers. Yeah. Um, Hutters, uh, who's who's like the main our hero of the story. Hero, hero. Yeah, our real estate agent. A real estate agent of the story. He has a, a lovely, very gothy, despondent wife. Despondent. That was the only word that I was going to throw out there, too. Well, Ellen. she basically, you know, and that's the a sign of the times, right? Your, your husband gets on a ship, you're instantly a widow. You just behave like one. You just are one. You just assume that you're going to be one. Mm-hmm. Because, he, like, you know what? He's going to be gone for eight months mm-hmm. in perilous conditions. Yeah. Yeah. He could die from the plague, shipwreck, whatever. Scurvy. I don't know. Scurvy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that would have been rough. But she ends up actually... I guess the cool thing is like she ends up actually sacrificing herself to Nosferatu. And I remember my first interpretation of this movie. And I was like, what? I thought that... I didn't realize that she died at the end. And I thought that it was her love somehow, their love for each other killed them. And I was what? like and I was like, was Nosferatu killed by love? Turns out that he's just like super wicked hype to drink blood from a fair maiden. And when so An innocent virgin. An innocent wait, was she an innocent virgin? Uh, it said she had to be pure. That's how I'm interpreting pure. Oh. Yeah. They, she was married to him though. They never got down. Maybe not. I don't know. It was the olden days, so who knows? Maybe but they just kissed each other a lot. Kissed each other a lot. They're like, this is all I need. This is what sex is, right? Yeah. There was no sex education back then. Maybe she was just pure of heart, but whatever. Either way, it's the sunlight <laughs> that does him in. So he is tricked, in a way, and lulled into having the opportunity to drink her blood. Which mm-hmm. he actually kind of had multiple yeah, chances it's, to do this. He it's didn't weird. have to wait till sunlight. When he first sees a picture of Ellen... He's like, what a lovely neck. Like, he's into her right away because yeah. he's a neck man, as you do. 
as you would be, I suppose, as a vampire. Good thing he, she's, he's not like an eye man, because she's got like these crazy staring black pools of sorrow. Oh, that's great. You just want to fix her. Anyway, uh... <laughs> but she, he has an opportunity, he has many opportunities to kill her, but you just soon, he, he, and even though he's super into her, yeah, he just goes after a bunch of other people first. It's not until she sort of goes to the window and he looks at her and stares at her for what seems like forever. Mm-hmm. That he's like, oh, now I'm gonna go get me some some blood. Mm-hmm. The end. <laughs> the movies in those days weren't that long. No, you're totally right, and it's longer than a lot of like the little eight minute slapstick reels and news reels that were more popular, and a lot more of them survive. Oh hell yeah! I mean, for fuck's sake, like the original uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, not not the more famous one, the not the famous Universal one with Lon Chaney Senior, but the the lesser known one was like 22 minutes, 24 minutes or some shit like that and it was considered like an epic. Like, oh my god. <laughs> Tw- over 20 minutes. Well, <laughs> I I start getting ant- getting antsy after 2 hours. Like a 2 hour movie, I'm kind of like, "Oh man." Yeah. I don't know. I like I prefer 88 minutes. Imagine sitting someone down for an 88 minute movie back then. Wow. They put themselves out of their misery by the hour mark. Oh my god. They're going to like Start thinking, like, I'll never make it. I'm going to die of old age in this theater. Yeah. <laughs> Show them Spartacus. Jesus, oh Murphy. God. That would be funny. I don't know. I didn't know that Hunchback of Notre Dame was that short. And that's like 32 or something like that, like 10 years after this. No, 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 no. Sorry. The, like, the, the one that you're thinking of, that is the full-length movie. Oh, is it? The, the one that I, There's one before the Lon Chaney Sr. one, the more famous one. Yeah. That, that, that's like... I don't even know if like if you can if it's available or anything like that, but like it was in the nineteen twenties, earlier than that. How was that? Yeah, it, it it was before Nosferatu, but again, it was a, it was a short. It was it was only twenty minutes long, but no, no, the Long Chaney Senior one is like a, a, a it's over an hour. I I've never heard how they did Max Schreck's makeup. I've seen photos of him outside of the makeup yeah me too and i looks like a pretty, all i really know about his life is that he was just really uh reclusive and he was reclusive he died very young 56 he died of uh heart failure mm-hmm. um uh, so yeah like not a lot of information i mean looking at the makeup you can see that there's ear prosthetics a nose prosthetic finger prosthetics lots of heavy white makeup dark circles the eyebrows are obviously fake he's wearing some kind of a bald cap there's there's a lot and his teeth his teeth yeah i mean i don't know how any of it any of it was accomplished i would suspect that it would be the same stuff that they would have had available for any makeup yeah i'd like i'd like to know it's quite interesting it's something i've never really looked up um and there isn't much information on Max Schreck as a person either, which is really helpful when you look at the Nicolas Cage-produced um, Shadow of the Vampire. Right, right. In what, like 2000? Yeah, a little, a little 2000-something, yeah, 2002, 2003. That was where, uh, was it Willem Dafoe played? Uh... An amazing version of Max Schreck slash Count Warlock, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was actually really, it's a really, really great film to watch. With uh, John Malkovich. 
as we yeah. know. Which, um, it's it's a hilarious film in that he is in character for the entire thing. When they will show them filming a scene, which they do really quite expertly, actually, and show what it would have been like to be on set in Nosferatu when it was being filmed. And then they cut away and they're like, it's a wrap, guys. And then he's still in character for the whole thing because the premise is that Max Schreck was actually a vampire. And he starts killing people on set and stuff like that. Really cool film. Um, but it's almost like if you want to live in the world where vampires, quote unquote, exist. Mm-hmm. Looking at that, it makes a lot of sense. And then watching Nosferatu again, it's like, wow. Like, imagine this is how he fucking looked. That this isn't fucking makeup. This is a vampire they found. They wrangled the vampire somehow. Yeah. Yeah. It actually is really funny. And because of the era in which this would have been made at and film was so new, I could see you sweet-talking a vampire. You want to be in a movie? And he'd be like, what's a movie? Yeah. And, and he's like, oh, and do this. And he's like, okay. And like, yeah. So, and then trying to rein that in, trying to rein the fact in that this guy is a killer yeah. and has like a completely different moral compass than you and wants to be in the movie, but at the same time. You're going to pay him in Virgin Girls. It's, it, all, it's easy. Yeah. 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 So it does make it hilarious. And because of how fucking crazy Max Trek's performance is in this movie. You, I could buy it. If yeah. someone, like, in a world where you could pretend, like, vampires are real, you could be like, yeah, yeah, this is definitely, like, the first true vampiric actor. Yeah, we have no, we have pictures of Shrek outside of makeup, whatever. That could just be a conspiracy. Yeah. The, we have no behind-the-scenes footage. We have no B-roll. We have nothing but the work print and the, the actual print, right? Mm-hmm. So we have nothing else to go on. We don't have behind-the-scenes photos that I know of. Of course, you can go to all the sets, but you don't have any reel of Shrek in and out of makeup or on set. So yeah. just pretend, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. it's hilarious to pretend. So I really recommend Shadow of the Vampire for Nosferatu fans. Mm-hmm. Big time. Yeah. And, and like Shadow of the Vampire is great. I like the, the remake, the 1970s remake. It's cool. But for my money, I just fucking love this. The, the, it's just like the, the age, the pedigree, the performances. I mean, yeah, the guy playing Hutter can seem like he's hopped up on something. Cause he's, oh, he's definitely Mushrooms X something. I don't know. Like, yeah, me, the first half of the film. I'll have what he's having. Yeah. <laughs> stoked on life. He is yeah. stoked on life. Yeah, even when he's brushing away mosquitoes, he's just like, oh, mosquitoes. And he reads the book, and then he gets kind of scared, and he throws the book away. And he's like, oh, I'm tired now, and he just goes to sleep. Then he wakes up, and it's sunny out, and he's like, that stupid book, get out of here with that. And then he sees the food. Oh, my God, food. I haven't eaten in, like, six hours. I just love the idea of, like, Count Orlock sitting there with like maybe a little chef's hat because he kind of looks like he's wearing a, they like their outside clothes kind of looks like a chef's hat mm-hmm. so i just imagine him just like i'm going to cook him the best breakfast ever he has nothing to do all night that's what i'm gonna say yeah. and and during the day he sleeps dead to the world maybe oh, that's totally. maybe that's why i like count orlock because he and i are the same yeah same schedule same schedule same deathly pallor yeah pretty much pretty much <laughs> When I bust you out of the coffin in the morning, it's about the same thing. I just flip the lid off. <laughs> Easy peasy, two hands. And the way that you sit up on a bed, all like stiff as a board. Yeah, well, when I wake up, one part of me is usually pretty stiff. 
I'm so glad that I give you a little time before you start recording. You know? <laughs> Makes it easier on our listeners. Hell, hell yeah. What keeps hitting the microphone? Well, now you know. Yeah, Wes Morningwood Night. <laughs> and on that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.